This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. It looked like the carbon tax was on the ropes. It looked like your heating bills were going to have some form of um, salvation this winter. Not the case. I wonder how much you're going to remember that come election time, but you may be somebody that says, no, we do need to pay our fair share. We need some form of tax on carbon and the environment. If we did a national poll right now, it'd be really fascinating to see where it would go. But remember, we have something called, um, I've only ever lived in, in two countries, and they're both democracies, and we have things called elections. And we had an election and decided to elect a party just 26 months ago that said, we're going to tax your carbon. So if we had a poll today and it said 90% of people don't like the carbon tax, well, 90% of people sure didn't not vote for the liberal government back in September of 21. I get it. Very different times. And I think people have used the word fatigue to describe where they might be with Justin Trudeau's liberals. But worth pointing out that there was an opportunity to do things and change things yesterday, and it was not taken by members of the House of Commons. And specifically, and I loved how this was put, a party that wants to break up the country, the Bloc Québécois, saved the Liberals from a really embarrassing result in this vote. Here's Andrew Scheer, of course, former uh, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, and he led the Conservatives into the 2019 fall election, making the plea on the floor yesterday for MPs to vote with their motion. After eight years, the Prime Minister is just not worth the cost. Now he wants to quadruple the tax on home heating, gas and groceries. But he decided to pause the pain for just 3% of families in areas where he's plummeting in the polls and his MPs are revolting. The Liberal Rural Affairs Minister said that if people on the prairies wanted a break from the carbon tax exemption, they should have elected more Liberal MPs. Well, the people in Sudbury did elect a Liberal. I visited there last week and people there want to know why their MP has been unable able to get them a pause on the pain. So simple question for the Prime Minister. Will he allow a free vote for the member for Sudbury on our motion to take the tax off and keep the heat on? Now you know, debate in the House of Commons happens in Queen's Park here in Toronto for the provincial parliament, and it sure happens at Toronto City Council. It kind of deviates. It goes down different side roads of rhetoric and slogans and whatnot. So I know that you're not expecting that to be the return from the Liberal Party of Canada today. You're expecting a serious discussion about why the carbon tax is valid. Or maybe you are expecting them to just say they believe in climate change and the Conservatives don't. Okay, it was that. Here's Liberal MP Karina Gould. Conservatives continue to spread information in this chamber. This uh, pause on the price on pollution on home heating oil applies right across the country, despite what the Conservatives keep saying. But what is particularly concerning, and I think I speak on behalf of every Ontario member of Parliament and many Ontario residents, is every time they say common sense, it brings up the terrible memories of the Mike Harris years, when not only did they slash public services, but they slashed them in such incredible ways that led to things like Walkerton. Mr. Speaker, Ontarians remember, and they're not going to elect common sense conservatives again. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Oh, my heavens, that meandered down around. Did you expect yesterday in the House of Commons we'd talk Mike Harris and Walkerton? I mean, tragic as it is, we're talking about something from the late 90s. I didn't expect that yesterday either. 
Meantime, in Halifax, that's where the prime minister was. Justin Trudeau's in Halifax, along with the first ministers. And that's all our premiers. And they were talking, you know, having meetings about the big issues that are affecting them. Certainly, uh, climate taxes are one of them. There's many a premier, including one liberal premier, who's begging to get a break for his constituents. Um, But there's provincial leaders also demanding a longer reprieve. Some energy consumers are getting a break in this country and some are not. It's just that simple. But what was with Doug Ford yesterday? You probably didn't spot this during the afternoon yesterday. Remember last week, Doug Ford had a news conference and everything he was asked about the green belt, everything was he was asked about the province's finances turned into a discussion about building homes. He's just here to build homes. All he wants to do is build houses. And that went from build, build, build yesterday to calling out the federal government. In essence, stop giving money to municipalities to build and stop reforming housing policies so houses can be built faster. Huh? What? Here's Doug Ford in Halifax yesterday. We do want to work collaboratively. We'll get a bigger bang for the buck for the, the people that need affordable, attainable homes, nonprofit homes, if we all work together. Uh, so we're encouraging the federal government. Let's all work together. Let's look at federal lands, municipal lands, provincial lands, and uh, we'll do a much better job for the people in need uh, right now. So we look forward to uh, hopefully them changing their mind, not uh, surprising each and every one of us one morning when they're in ABC town uh, dropping millions of dollars uh, when that's not their jurisdiction. Uh, that's our jurisdiction. We welcome their help, and uh, hopefully they, they'll put an end to this. Two obvious holes in the logic, and he may have just woke up on the wrong side of the hotel bed and the milk may have not exactly been fresh for his cornflakes. But Doug Ford doesn't get that what he just opened up there is a bit of a Pandora's box. If, if it's your jurisdiction, why haven't you been building and why haven't you been using your money? The federal government's giving the municipality money for following their lead in terms of housing. What's he been waiting for? He said months to object to what uh, Sean Fraser, the liberal housing minister, has been doing. And I asked two people who know housing like the back of their hand yesterday what they thought of it. And I got responses like, seriously, why now? It's unbelievably frustrating. It's only going to slow the process down. So I can't figure this one out. I asked a few people yesterday, what's Doug Ford's play here to call this process out? And why was he quiet for the two and a half months that Fraser's been doing this? They're doing the work. So he and the province, in essence, don't have to. Now, the argument might be Doug Ford wants the money to flow to them rather than the municipalities. And I might want that level of power also. But you don't have to say it out loud. If Doug Ford does what the federal government did, legalizing fourplexes across Ontario, then that $1.5 billion that goes to Ontario municipalities can go to the provincial government instead. So it's just that simple. I don't get the complaint. I don't get the... Um, You know, the in essence, the W word, the whining about it. That's what I heard yesterday from the premier. And I don't often say that. He's whining yesterday about the federal government attempting to build for communities so the province doesn't have to. And by the way, did the federal government screw up? Yes. Is this the first competent housing minister in the last three? Also, yes. And the Fed screwed up by not going harder on the province a year or two ago. I think that's also true. They completely let the province skate on this. And now they're coming in and tightening the screws. And if Doug Ford doesn't like it, all he needs to do is look in the mirror and say, I had my opportunity. 
because he did. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. We'll get to this amazingly confusing story about the Toronto Library. I mean, how it's happened is confusing. That it's not working uh, and the online limitations of the library because of a uh, cyber hack have been certainly something for the last 10 or 11 days affecting library users. We'll get to that in a little bit. We told you a week and a half ago about the potential for the province to uh, assume control of the Don Valley Parkway and the Gardner Expressway. That'd be a big financial burden and a practical burden as well off the city of Toronto. And the province may not be done. A story yesterday that uh, Ontario may operate Toronto's LRTs, including the Finch West LRT, that's up and running to some extent, and the Eglinton Crosstown, which is not yet up and running. So there's a lot of uh, numbers being pushed around and there's a lot of confusion about what would happen and how that would look um, under the uh, banner of the province and Metro Links, of course. April Engelberg joins us right now, uh, as she does every Tuesday at 6.30. It's great to have you on. What do you think of this story and what do you know about this story and the practicality of Ontario taking on these projects? Good morning, Greg. Yes, we don't know a lot about it yet because we got this through, I believe, a global news story. But what we're seeing is that um, the province is being asked basically to pay for both LRTs. And what it's costing is about $106 million per year. So I am not in favor of this. I think that Toronto fought enough several years ago, if you remember, to maintain control over the TTC, and we should just keep operating it. It's, it's out of everything, for example, you mentioned, you know, the province taking over the gardener and whatnot. Those those projects will help us a lot more, like repairing the gardener, for example, than taking over these two LRTs. I think the city should just keep operating it. What the or, sorry, operate it when it opens. Yeah, that's the biggest thing right now. But it, it jumped out at me that are we paying the you know one hundred six million dollars per the story April? Are we paying one hundred six million dollars out of Toronto taxes for a line that isn't even open yet, or have they taken that money and utilized it somewhere else? Great question. Yeah. So what we saw when Olivia Chow announced um, upgraded uh, TTC, for example, more employees working on the TTC last month, the month before, what they did is they took money that was originally allocated to operate the Eglinton LRT and they put it towards that project instead. So I think for now what we're doing is we're taking the money that was allocated to operate the Eglinton LRT since it hasn't opened yet and we're putting it towards other TTC projects, which is a good idea. Now, we're only going to guess uh, right now as to what the province's reaction is going to be. They really haven't said much publicly on the record about the DVP or the gardener. So this is all piling up on them, things that are costly, things that involve transit, things that Toronto may not want to pay for. Um, but what's the benefit of the province to take over a project like the Eglinton? Exactly. So I think it makes a lot more sense for the province to take over the highways, right? Because the argument there is, well, a lot of the people that are using these highways aren't actually living in Toronto and they're using it to commute into the city, whereas the Eglinton LRT and arguably the Finch LRT as well are going to be mostly Toronto-based projects. So I think the city should continue to pay for it, especially because it costs a fraction of what it's going to cost us to repair the gardener, for example. So we should just keep operating the TTC. Now, um, a project you're passionate about goes to consultation today, and it's the Shepherd Subway Extension. So give us a sense where that would go, what it connects to, and it does go really far out east. So let's give people sort of a geographical uh, sense of this project. Okay, so we all know the Shepherd Subway right now, it's 
not it's not the best, right? It only has about 39,000 ridership uh, people riding it a day, which is extremely low ridership. Like for example, the King streetcar has more than double that amount. Um, even the Dufferin bus has more people riding it than the Shepherd line right now. But the idea is let's make it more useful. So let's connect the Shepherd subway to the university line at Shepherd West station on the West side. And then um, on the East side, let's connect it to Scarborough Center on the upcoming new Scarborough line, as well as connecting it to three different GO stations. So it's right now very early phases, the consultation phase, so we don't know exactly where the stops would be yet. And the first consultation is today, and there'll Mm -hmm. be more consultations next week as well. So personally, I want to see the business case that this would actually expand ridership. Otherwise, I think we should invest in other areas of the TDC. If if this is actually going to be a useful line once it's complete, then I would definitely support it. But right now, I need to see the numbers. April Engelberg's our guest on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. And I think for everything you said, it's just so critical for the people of Scarborough to have, you know, routes in to where they work, where they want to shop, where they there's you can do it all in Scarborough. But we've just we've been really we've really not treated the people of Scarborough uh, with the best of intentions or the best of options when it comes to getting from point A to B. Definitely. And this would make it much easier to get from Scarborough into different parts of Toronto. So that that definitely is a perk of this current design option. Yeah. Let's get to this library story uh, before we wrap. Uh, it's been 11 days as of this morning. We're finally getting an admission from the Toronto Public Library that there, I mean, we can use words like ransomware, a cyber hack, but I, it's a weird one. I wouldn't I wouldn't demand of a, of a private business explain what happened. I said this happened to my kid's school board last year, and we still don't have many answers. Um, but I, I, feel, I feel like there's an element of public trust that you lose if you're if you're in the city and your library is hacked and you're not telling people at least some form of a step by step for any of the 11 days. Um, what's your thought on this? Definitely. We should know a bit more of what's happening. I mean, I do kind of feel bad for the Toronto Public Library because they're a great service and they're doing the best they can. Like, for example, I went last week and I checked out books where they had to literally write down what I was checking out on paper. Um, And no one can see what their holes are. No one can see the status of their account. But we definitely should know a little bit more of what's going on. Um, and hopefully the library can get up to normal function again. That yeah. must have felt so bizarre to check things out uh, manually with, with pencils and little yeah. sheets of paper. Yeah, exactly, because luckily I knew what was already on hold for me at the library, so I, I went and then they checked it out. But the way that it works is there's different branches, right? And so most branches don't have necessarily the book that you want to check out, and a lot of the time there's a line, so you have to go into your account online and put the book on hold until it ends up at your location. So that whole system is not working at all. The only way you mm. can really check out a book right now is if it's actually at the branch and not on hold for someone else. Unbelievable so, story. Slow time for the library lo- users. Yeah. Well, and, and I know you're, you know, you're dying to dig right into that Britney Spears book. You can confess oh, that. Yeah, I, told you that. I mean, d- I have had that book on hold for a while now <laughs> and I don't, see it coming my way i honestly might have to buy it at this point uh you and you won't have a taylor swift autobiography uh for another 10 12 years i think she's gonna she's gonna keep this on the down. despite travis kelsey she's gonna keep this on the down low there'll be a few chapters about him we'll all look forward to that around 2035 or so 
I I think it, it might. I feel like if she's going to write a book, it will be when she's like ninety or something. But yes, as of now, all I got is the Britney Spears book. Which did, did, for me Britney's second book. Britney's second book will, will be when she's ninety, uh, and and there will be a renaissance <laughs> about how she's out there like Madonna at sixty five, playing stadiums still and whatnot. Uh, loved having you on this morning. Thanks for the time. Thanks, Greg. Have a good day. April Engelberg joining us on Toronto Today. I think that Shepherd Project's a really interesting one, and it does go all the way out to Scarborough Centre. And if you can get to Scarborough Centre, believe me, being more an East Ender than a West Ender, um, people do want the subway to extend out. It's affected. It affects real estate prices. It's one of the first things people ask in Scarborough or Rouge. How close can I be to the subway? And that's for people that don't have a car. And that's for people who may not want to even take a car uh, at that point in time. But she's right to focus on ridership estimates. Um, but like when you, the Shepherd line has half the riders of the King Street car, you have to wonder, does ever, you either don't know about it or you don't like it. And, and you don't like it because too crowded, unreliable. There could be many reasons why you don't take public transit. We already know that. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. The uh, federal liberals said we want to buy back guns. We want to get guns off the street. And they said this is going to cost us some money to buy back guns. Well, um, according to our next guest, uh, who's uh, in, with the uh, National Post and is a Parliament Bureau reporter, it ended up being a lot more money. Brian Passfumes broke a big story here on the National Post, and he joins us now on Toronto Today. It's great to have you on. Hey, good morning, Greg. How are you? Um, I'm great. Let's lay out what was expected um, to cost the government uh, when they announced a buyback that had some controversy to it, but many people didn't quibble about the number. But this has ballooned, like many government projects do, to a number that's unthinkable. They called it buyback, but it's really a gun grab or confiscation or whatever, but it's all just sort of banding terms about. Uh, yeah, there's never really been a – since the early days of the uh, liberal uh, – Trudeau liberals' uh, plans to you know control guns, there's always been talk of the gun buyback. Originally, it was a voluntary one, but that was soon changed to, uh, to mandatory after some uh, pressure from a Quebec uh, uh, gun group. That's a different story. But yeah, during the uh, last election in 2019 um, – the um, the government has said between four hundred and six hundred million dollars of a cost to to uh, compel Canadians to sell their firearms back to the government. Um, that was back in two thousand nineteen. Now there was um, um, I guess a, a slide deck that was uh, captured in an access to information uh, request uh, over the summer. Uh, around that same time, that actually put the cost of the uh, the buyback uh, administration compensation at one point eight billion dollars. That's billion with a B. Yeah, which is just a massive, massive number. I and I don't know what, how you would stand in front of a camera today or a microphone and 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 the person that set the amount originally saying ah this might go as high as seven hundred fifty six million dollars just two years ago can explain how it's three times that this morning. Well, and and that's the thing, and really it's. All these numbers are really just kind of nebulous up in the air. I know the um, the Prime Minister Budget Officer back in 2021 said it could cost as high as $768 million. Um, there's been some academics that have said it could be more. But really, honestly, there's really, you know, four years after the election, three years after the uh yeah, after all the all the legislation and, and the rules were rolled out, we still don't have a plan as to what this this buyback is going to look like. You know, they've already initiated the first phase through retailers, the uh, legislation uh, C21 and the Order and Council in 2020. You know, rendered you know millions of dollars worth of stock for gun retailers 
essentially useless and, and unsellable. So, so the government's working on plans for that. But um, mm. yeah, you know, when it comes to confiscating guns from everyday people, that yeah, those plans still have haven't even been drafted or even announced or even talked about yet. Yeah, it's just it's not as practical. It's not as practical as as anybody made it seem like it would be on paper. And the plan had some skeptics from the beginning. Brian Passfium from the National Post, I guess. I'll give you two data points that interested me. An Angus Reid poll, May 1st, 2020, showed 13 percent of respondents said they own at least one gun. And 95 um, percent of firearm owning households in Canada possess long guns. I, I don't think we've seen recent data that that changes. But, Brian, that's a really inexact science to poll people people on whether they own guns or not because um people lie on polls <laughs> so i don't i don't know how we get to an exact number well and that's the thing it's very difficult to like there's no there's no registry for long guns in canada um obviously the best way you can get that number is by looking at how many people in canada have non-restricted versus restricted firearms licenses which uh, you know at least tell you a little bit of how much you're dealing with but yeah that's why these programs are so are are, are, are so hard to manage because you know you like you know when you're talking about the ar-15 like i don't think people i don't think you know especially listeners in toronto don't realize how many people in canada own ar-15s like they're incredibly popular versatile useful firearms for for hunting for target shooting or whatever so a lot of people own them and you know compensating people you know you know a few thousand dollars for 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 their for their property and and it goes way beyond that they're talking about administration you're going to have a lot of really high priced people working there you've got to figure out a way to either disable or destroy the weapons you gotta you have to guard them like it's it's you know you when you when you sort of peel back the layers of this onion it just gets more and more expensive you're kind of documenting that. Do we have our own gun culture? We talk about the United States one. I know the numbers aren't the same. I know the veracity um, uh, in terms of arguing um, a, an inherent constitutional right isn't the same. But from your research, we have our own gun culture, don't we? You know, one of the few things that Michael Moore got right in his uh, in his, his documentary Bowling for Columbine, he talked a lot about Canada's gun culture. Was that yeah, Canada does have a, a gun culture. You know, Canada, there's a lot of I would I I don't want to say gun nuts in Canada, but there's a lot of people in Canada that uh, you know that that not only are are you know use it as a hobby and a sport, but also a means of self sustenance and of of getting food for their family. You know, sustenance hunters and things like that. So really, outside of Toronto, I know I've lived in Toronto my whole life. I know that everything north of Barrie is northern Ontario and the wilderness and there be dragons kind of thing. But, you know, it's 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 a way of life for so many people in this yeah. country that, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why the amendments that they try to put into C-21 failed, because, you know, they wanted to take away all these rifles that, uh, you know, the, the people in Ottawa assumed were military assault rifles. But, you know, these are ones that people mm. use daily for hunting, particularly First Nations people. So really, there, there's so many aspects I don't think the government is really understanding when it comes to Canada's gun culture and how important firearms are to daily life in Canada outside of our cities. Yeah, and it just feels like again, it's uh, it's it's a waste of taxpayers' money if it's not gay. the concept is solve crime. And I think there's too much data out there that says these aren't responsible legal gun owners that are committing the majority of crimes. The numbers tell us that over and over again. I got a blast for now, Brian. Thanks for the time today. Anytime. Good morning, Brian Passfume with a great story on the NationalPost.com. Yeah, it's your money and my money uh, to try and placate a voting base. In this particular case, this is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Shiba Siddiqui is our producer and, and with me uh, right beside me about four feet away. Hi. Hi. Um, I, now, you, you remember specific. The, you remember the 90s, right? 
Vaguely. Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, on this day in 1991, I got home and I remember it was about five in the afternoon and I remember it was a Thursday and sometimes you see stories coming and this one is one we didn't. On this day, November 7, 1991, Magic Johnson, the uh, incredibly famous, well-known basketball player for the LA Lakers, he's probably one of the best three or four players in the sport and he's probably one of the five or six best ever, announced Snap of a finger, he's retiring from basketball because he tested positive for HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. So I remember this really, really well. You're younger than me. Do you kind of remember that it's I've, a big deal? It's so I, I vaguely remember that there was a very famous, but I knew his name, Magic Johnson. He was a really famous basketball player. And because I didn't know the details, I was too young to know what happened. I was told that he had some kind of a disease and he was going to die. Yeah. And this is before, and Gord Rennie, I'll bring in because you're a massive Queen fan. This is prior to Freddie Mercury passing away because I think Freddie Mercury passed away in very in the winter of 92 because yeah. they had that tribute concert yes. in the spring of 92. So to me, if I, I put it together last night, Magic Johnson's announcement is before we know anything about Freddie Mercury's condition. I think those are the sort of two most famous, how would I put it, ambassadors for HIV and AIDS, although yes. Mercury announced it really, what, a week or two before he succumbed to the disease. Yes, he did. That, that, that part is true. Nobody knew. So everyone well, knew there was something wrong with him because the last Queen video they did, he was very thin looking. Gaunt. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the uh, news conference, uh, November 7, 1991. I swear, you heard it? Because People of the, the HIV virus that I have attained, uh, I will have to retire from the Lakers uh, today. Um I just want to make clear, first of all, that I do not have the AIDS disease, because I know a lot of you I can want to know that, but the HIV virus. Um, my wife is fine. She's negative, so no problem with her. Um, I plan on going on, living for a long time, bugging you guys like I've always have. So you'll see me around. I plan on being with the Lakers in the league. Hopefully David will have me for a while. Um, and going on with my life. Now he's referencing the Commissioner David Stern now. So Magic Johnson is a remarkably healthy 64-year-old man now. Still married. He's still married to Cookie. To Cookie. Right? And, they, and just, you know, I don't know if you're aware of this, but when he learned of his diagnosis, they had gotten married a month and a half before that. And she was expecting their first child. Oh, I did not know that that yes. was their first kid. That was their first child, and cooking him had just, just gotten married. But the little we knew about HIV and AIDS, and then sort of how you had to portray it in the media. Like, let's be very fair about what people thought it was in 1991. We thought that disease was almost universally uh, uh, afflicting gay men uh, practicing unprotected sex and intravenous drug users. And magic, honestly was the first person in our culture to step up and say, it's happened to me. I want to play you. He went later that night. Oh, so this is Thursday. He went on Arsenio Hall show Friday night. And Arsenio's late night show was honestly probably as hot as it could possibly get around the years of 91, 92. Here's him explaining the disease to Arsenio. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm far from being homosexual. You already know that. And everybody, and everybody else who close to me understand that. But uh, see, that's that's the whole thing that they think is can only happen to gay people, and that and that's so wrong. And uh, even I was naive to think, hey, well, it couldn't happen to me. Only them, well, this and that. But that's wrong. 
Yeah. Heterosexuals are, it's coming fast, and uh, we're going to have to be prepared for it. Okay. So when you hear that clip, you can tell it's 30 years ago, Sheba, right? Like you almost have to like, but I'm not gay. I want everybody to know because there were rumors about it in the day afterwards. Well, that's because that's what we were, we were assuming based on what we knew about the, about HIV. Did that make you nervous? Yes. Yeah. When, when he said that, basically, if you, th- you did think, uh, I don't probably have the, um, how would I put it? Uh, as a 20 year old going to Western or 19 year old going to Western at that point in time, I didn't quite have the uh, opportunities that uh, 30-year-old Magic Johnson would with the <laughs> Los Angeles player? Lakers. Okay, fair enough. To be with women. But I remember watching it with my three roommates, and we all just sat there honestly. We watched the press conference, and we watched the Arsenio thing, and we just sat there. We probably went out later that night because we did what we did, but we just sat there in stone silence. And I'm going to tell you, for three or four years, it was, I think it changed dating, even for schlubs like me. We were definitely mm. more cautious. I think we asked more questions than probably our parents do about what's your number? What's your like? What's your history? We cared more about somebody's history. We really did by that point in time. I, I'm just speaking for me. I bet well, you there's I think people you had to. You had after, to after learning what happened to him and how it happened. And, uh, you know, I don't know a lot. Uh, I didn't know a lot about him at that time. As I got older, obviously, the story unfolded. And then I didn't know I had a little bit of a. Bad taste in my mouth for him because, you know, he stepped out on his wife multiple times. Uh, but what I do know, I know his, uh, so he's got three kids. Andre, who was born out of out of wedlock with a, a, um, a different woman. Okay. And then a decade later, he married Cookie and they have two kids together. And mm. I know EJ. Do you know EJ? No. This is his eldest son with Cookie and he is a gay icon. He has I did not know the that. best reality TV shows. He is like so flamboyant. Mr. Fashion, he's fantastic. So I know him very well. Mm. But it, it's it's interesting how it happened because we were worried. I, rem- I do remember going a year and a half after that and taking an HIV test after I broke up with somebody. And I don't know what compelled me to do it. And I sure wasn't alone. Now, I don't know anybody who ever tested positive for HIV. Ever? Ever. I, I don't know anybody who ever did. But when he says that, you're thinking... It is going to be everywhere. It's it, you thought that in 1991. Wow! And I'll so give that's you, a panic. I think it was a panic at that point in time. And and we what we needed to do is probably structure health and medicine to get it where it is now. And we needed to prioritize the groups that it was afflicting more, which was gay men. We needed mm-hmm. to do more for gay men. We needed to do more for intravenous drug users. The national rate right now for males. Uh, in 2021 in Canada, 6.5 for every 100,000. So it's a really small number. Females, 2.5. So that, so you're more likely, three times more likely as a male to get it. Wow. But it's still not a very big number. So back then, explain yeah. this to me because yeah, you would know this better than me. He was still playing basketball? Yeah. and he, he So what was that? Imagine what that locker room was like. How I'm sure they must have wanted nothing to do with him. They didn't probably didn't even want to touch him, go near him. He was probably alienated, isolated. Even playing basketball, they must have been worried on the court. There, because you got it. What a great point. Because people were worried about, could you get it from sweat? Mm. Could you get it if, if somebody sneezed on you? It wasn't unlike what we've gone through the last three years. Oh, keep your germs away from me. There was the, could I get it from a toilet seat? Wow. Publicly. Like you were... And they still let him play, despite not knowing the answers to that. Well, so he announced his retirement there, but he came back. He played in the Olympics later that summer. That was the big dream team for the first time NBA players went. So Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, all these icons that everybody would know, 
Magic came back and played in the summer. By then, people just seemed more relaxed about it. But I will tell you, that was a big thing as well for him to be iconic in terms of making sure people understood that, you know, they weren't, it wasn't some kind of cooties. You weren't going to get it from a handshake or a hug or a kiss on the cheek. It was a, it was transfer, transmitted by a blood, you know, or semen or other bodily fluids. You weren't going to get it from sweat or hugging somebody. But, I, but in, in the eighties, we didn't know that. No, we, I remember Princess Diana, she hugged someone with HIV. Do you remember that famous picture? Yes. That video? Yes. And everyone was terrified that the princess was now going to get HIV. I'm glad you brought that up. She did a ton uh, for HIV and AIDS research.